rules to me are simple. The house must be a confined space, a beach town, a spaceship, a futuristic Disneyland with dinosaurs, a family unit. There must be a sin committed, usually greed, monetary or carnal, prompting the creation of a supernatural monster that comes like an avenging angel to kill those who have committed that sin and spare those who realize what that sin is. The rest is run and hide. And putting a new twist on both the monster, the monster's powers, and the way we say boo is the job of the screenwriter. So that was from Save the Cat, which I brought up when we were doing the CrossFit Open um, back in February. This Save the Cat book is how you would either write movies or how you would interpret movies. Not that I'm ever going to become a screenwriter. I was just kind of fascinated by this. And, And movies are one way we tell stories, just as podcasting is. And so it's a very simple book, but... I brought up, you know, there's different ways to write movies, and and this particular author, who is Blake Snyder, has ten types of movies. Monster in the House is one of them, and that was my team was kind of the monster in in my house team. There's also the Golden Fleece, which maybe we can talk about another day, but this is like what most movies fall into, is where the hero doesn't know what, you know, he or she wants in life, and even Star Wars, Luke Skywalker, is he's stuck on – is it Tatooine? you get got Star Wars people are going to kill me. But he's stuck there with his uncle and doesn't really know what he wants in life. And then Star Wars is basically taking Luke Skywalker through his family history of Darth Vader and, and how he grows and evolves. And that's a Golden Fleece movie. So there's um, – you know, a dude with a problem, this is like your die hard. Um, so we can go into all these later. I just – I'm fascinated by them. But for whatever reason, horror movies, it's not like I'm a huge fan and I love blood and guts. But I think some of the stories and the way people can tell them, it just it fascinates me. And so here I'm kind of scrolling around on Facebook and it pops up on my timeline that Jaws is 48 years old as of today. And, you know, that's not like a mile marker, you know, 50 years or, or whatever. But, I was, okay, this is interesting. And so – I started looking in the comments and kind of people like talking about what a classic Jaws was. And, you know, the fun thing about having kids is you can kind of experience things for the first time again through them. And so, you know, I love Breaking Bad and I would love to be able to just kind of wipe my memory and watch Breaking Bad again and just be surprised by every twist and turn. You know, I read Game of Thrones and the plot twists are just fascinating and you know, to be able to read that again from a fresh point of view would be so cool. So having kids, though, gives you that somewhat ability to experience things for the first time again. And so we we were big fans of Home Alone at our house. And when we played it for our kids the first time that they saw this, you know, this is a classic that I grew up with. And is it, is it Marv gets hit, hit with the hot iron and it burns onto his face? Like the kids are just belly laughing, rolling. And it's fun to experience that through them. And so that's that's one of the, the perks, if you will, of having kids is, is being able to kind of go through life and, and tell those stories and learn those stories again with your kids. And so I was like, okay, Sophie kind of likes my oldest daughter. She's she's 11 and she kind of likes scary movies. So I'm like, hey, Sophie, let, let's watch this classic. And so that was fun to experience that with her. You know, it starts off and immediately you have the shark comes into play and they play that. It's I guess it's like two notes that da And maybe I'll play it here.
And so Sophie is like immediately uncomfortable and she's kind of like on the edge of her seat, like what is going on? And so this, this beautiful lady gets basically eaten by the shark, you know, spoiler alert. Um, but Spielberg just, just, he does such a great job with the movie and right from the get go, here you are like on the edge of your seat. And I can remember watching this as a kid. I was probably, I don't know, probably her age, probably Sophie's age, maybe a little younger and we had a pond in the backyard, and you could swim in it. Well, I'd jump off the dock, and then I'd, like, scramble back to get onto the dock because what if what if there's a shark out there? And it was like the water's only, like, three to five feet deep, so there's no way there's a shark out there. But that movie had such an impact on me that here I was somewhat scared of the water. And they talked about in some of the comments, like, yeah, I didn't go to the beach for years. It talked about, like, beach attendance went way down. So Spielberg just – did something right here to, to spook that many people, to pull that pe- many people in. I would encourage you maybe to go back and, and watch it. But one thing, I'm not going to tell you the kind of the story of Jaws, but I do want to pull out some stories that maybe are within the story. And so this takes place on Amity Island, which is like Friendship Island. And you see kind of from the get-go this moral conundrum that there's this new police officer who wants to shut down the beaches, but everybody in the community does not want that to happen. This is uh, like an island town that needs the needs the revenue. The mayor doesn't want to shut down. The hotel people don't want it to shut down. But this police officer, he's morally called to like shut the place down. And so you can kind of see how he tries to put his foot down, but then other people override him. And how it, you just see the story of how hard it is when you feel you want to do something right, but everybody else is pushing against you, how hard that is to really put your foot down. And so – you know, Spielberg is giving you these kind of tension and, and these moments of like, this is how things go in life, and, the, and he's putting it into action here. And so, these three people, these three actors, the main actors, if you will, they go out and search for Jaws, the the, the big shark. You see another story of just of pride, and the the main fisherman is so proud of himself and so confident that he's going to catch this shark that. The police officer at one point is trying to call for help because that's what that's what they do. And and he says that famous line of, we're going to need a bigger boat. And so he tries to call back and, and call for help, and the fisherman's having none of it. He is going to – he wants this fish. This is his shark. He doesn't want help. He doesn't want anybody else there. So he basically cuts the, the communication line out. And so this also plays into our monster in the house, like – not only is this area confined to the beach, but now it's confined to these three guys on a boat and the shark. So it's Spielberg is doing another, you know, like making it even more confined of we have to deal with this monster now. There's there's no escaping. And and this is like pride before the fall. Uh, this fisherman's so proud of himself and he's so confident that – so the fisherman just kind of steals the show. And I think he does a great job. And I'll kind of break him down a little more here, I think. Why do we care? Why am I telling you all about this this story or this you know this movie? And and we talked about a lot on the podcast if we interpret things in life via the stories we tell. And movies are an avenue of telling stories. So the this story 40 years ago is still I guess it's it's still a great story today. And and, and watching this 2-hour movie with my daughter who who at times faded in and out on her phone like it, it was fun to go back and watch. As I'm looking at the comments on on Jaws from 48 years ago, um, there's this really good YouTube video, and he breaks down the background of of kind of how Jaws was filmed and the problems with it. 
And so I'll link to that here, but I want to touch on some of those. So it sounds like there was multiple people that tried to write the book of Jaws or write the script. And the Universal Studios wanted Spielberg to film this in a tank. He didn't want any, they didn't want any kind of uh, outside environment. But Spielberg put his foot down. He said, like, this has to feel like empty ocean. And so out there, I think it was filmed in Massachusetts on um, Martha's Vineyard. And they would have boats come in the background because you can see 20 miles, you know, off the coast or 20 miles down at, at sea. You can see 20 miles, 20 miles out. And so there would be another boat come by and they would have to wait for that boat to clear the area to start filming again. And so not filming in the tank caused all sorts of problems. It sounds like um, they could not hire all the actors they wanted. Uh, everybody turned them down. And Spielberg ended up hiring some guy at a cocktail party to be the police officer who does, who does a great job here. Um, but they, they failed to get the people they were after. And it sounds like the three actors, the three main actors, didn't get along at all. And so Spielberg was really worried about that. But the thing you'll see in the movie is, is those three, that lack of liking each other carries over to the movie. And that's how they're supposed to act anyways. And, and so they actually do a great job. And so for these three actors to not be the, the ones they wanted, I think they, it's awesome. They, they did great. So some other issues, and I guess the, the biggest one is the, the sharks that they, they created. So they hired great stage engineers, but the problem is Universal Studios put this like really fast timeline on them. So they're trying to create these mechanical sharks to put into the water. And I guess the the biggest shark they made is, I, I think he's called Bruce, but the, this guy was also talking about, they were calling these sharks big white turds because they didn't work the way they were supposed to. I guess the first one they put in the water fell to the bottom of the, the ocean it caused all sorts of problems. And I guess there, there's one great scene where the, the rich scientist has a cage and he's going to get in this cage and the fisherman kind of makes fun of him. He's just like, that's stupid. And you're asking to die. And he sends, sings this great limerick or this great poem and kind of like, you're going to say goodbye for the last time when you get in this cage. And he kind of, it's kind of this foreshadowing. So I'm going to play this here. I think it was really cool. And so Quint is the, the captain, and he's always, you know, he was a big drinker, I guess, in real life, but it, it goes, it shows through in the in the film that he kind of slurs his words, and he's supposed to kind of be this drunk sailor. So here's how it goes, and then I'll play it um, how he sings it. Uh, you, uh, you're, you're glad I'm a podcaster and not a singer, so here we go. Farewell and adieu to you, fair Spanish ladies. Farewell and adieu, you ladies of Spain. For we've received orders for to sail back to Boston... And so never more shall we see you again. So here's Quint's version. Farewell and adieu to you fair Spanish ladies. Farewell and adieu you ladies of Spain. For we've received orders for to sail back to Boston. And so never more shall we see you again. So when they set this scene up, I guess the mechanical shark goes nuts inside the cage. And they're lucky the first actor was not in there because they said he would have drowned. So they have issues with these sharks working. There's safety concerns. None of this is going right for Spielberg. Um, the budget is going, you know, they, they, they make this dramatic, but it's like a $3 million budget. It blows up to like $9 million. The time it takes to, to film everything is double. Everything's 
just not the way it's supposed to be. And so Spielberg is kind of beside himself, very frustrated. And the thing that maybe he didn't see at the time, or this is the reason we're talking about this, is when things aren't the way you want them or you're just in a setting that is just you're so frustrated with, sometimes your best work can come out of that. So I read this book called Clutch, and I read it several years ago, and I would bring it to soccer practices, and I've since lost the book. So it would probably ended up in some some of the high school room or something. But he talks about clutch is, being clutch is performing a task that you are good at or you should be able to execute on. No matter, you know, if it's fourth quarter, the ninth inning, you should be able to execute what you've done over and over again. So a five-foot putt for birdie or um, a soccer penalty kick, okay? You're supposed to make 75% of what, what you take. I don't know what it is statistically, but it's, it's a very high percentage. You're supposed to execute and score that goal. And so he talks about, he brings up scenarios where people have performed in not so ideal circumstances and how their best came out of that. And, and the first example that I remember off the top of his head is there's, there's a, some fabulous pianist that is um, great at the piano and he's set up to play at this concert or this bar and he's so frustrated this piano was not in tune. It wasn't the way he wanted. And so he's got to come back that night and play that piano. There's no time to do any kind of tuning and any kind of adjustment. So this performer overemphasizes every note, like is pounding on the notes. But they said like it was his best rendition of that song or whatever it was. And it was so magical because he was forced to play a little different. So the author talks about some of your best work can come out of things that you have no idea your, you, your best work would come out of. Okay. And I don't re remember if this was in the book, but this is the one that comes to my mind is a lot of people have seen um, the Michael Jordan series. It's like this, I forget what it's called, but it's like seven episodes and it goes through kind of his career. But there was that, um, it was the NBA finals against Utah and Jordan is in Utah. And I don't know if they just finished up, a game, but he orders a late night pizza. There's nothing else open in Utah. It's it's late at night. So he orders his pizza and five guys show up to deliver one pizza. It's like, well, when does ever when do you need five guys to show up to deliver one? So it was very suspicious from the get go. But Jordan didn't seem to care and he ate this whole pizza. Well, you know, twelve hours later he's puking his guts out. He's he's got food poisoning, we assume from intentionally from these Utah, I guess jazz fans that poisoned his pizza and so he turns around and scores 38 points that night in just a cold sweat the entire game just not feeling well throwing up but he puts up one of his best performances and they win that that game and the other one that I really like is um, uh, Jimmy Fallon is is that late night comedian and he has his band The Roots and I don't know if they still play but he intentionally puts himself into they, – they go to a room and they play songs with these famous people with childhood instruments. And you'll have, you know, like a xylophone. You'll have like those uh, recorders that you have in the fifth grade. Like they have all these like non-professional instruments. And then they play uh, – there's like Adele plays Hello. Um, and I'll play maybe a clip of that. Um, I think my favorite one is he does the Backstreet Boys. They all sing and they do it in these childhood instruments. 
So Fallon and the Roots are creating a scenario that's that's probably not perfect or not ideal. But what comes out of that is so creative and so fun. It's like an amazement. Like I love it. And it's like almost more than the actual song itself. And so just that confinement of a certain space forces you to to think outside the box. And I've gotten into a little bit of poetry. You guys have heard it here. Um, you know, we had that poem for Natalie, Natalie McDowell when she passed away. We've done um, some poetry with Cole Anderson. We did that for the Crosswarts, the uh, CrossFit Open, what, two years ago now? And if you remember that, we, we talked, uh, Steve ran, read the, the script, and Cole helped me with this. But, you know, one of my favorite lines was, find a love for all that is gymnastics, count all reps, have the best mathematics. And Steve's deep voice, you know. And so poetry, why I, some people are kind of you know, chuckling, like, to me, having to have certain amount of syllables in a line or having this word have to rhyme with that word, it, it's that restrictive creativeness that you've got to come up with. I, I think it just opens up your horizons or makes you makes your mind expand. And I love that. So back to back to Jaws. And, and this is, um, you know, I guess why I'm talking about long story short here is Spielberg ended up creating a fabulous movie from basically non-ideal situations. And he had to, a lot of what the movie is, is you don't actually see the monster. You don't see Jaws basically in the full ever. And that first scene, the lady gets, gets chewed up and you're seeing it from almost as if you're the shark. You don't see the shark. You see her pull left and right. And I guess they put ropes on her hips and pulled her left or right in the water. So you don't, see a lot of the shark and if you don't know where the monster is you know and even in life if you don't know what's coming next for you like it's scary and so for Spielberg he had to kind of just not show the shark a lot and and you see there's certain times you see barrels floating about and it's the shark pulling the barrels but you don't see the shark and so it's it's this tension he creates probably somewhat accidentally but somewhat I'm sure just the genius that he is 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 you don't know exactly where the shark's coming from, you get scared, and 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 so for this to happen 48 years ago, I'm sure it's set set up for other scary movies and other you know monster in my house themes, and you know my Blake Snyder from Save the Cat he talks about give me the same thing but different, and so you have the Golden Fleece movies, but give give me something, it's the same concept but it's something new, and so my kids are watching uh, Super Mario the movie right now and we have it at home. And I think it's trying to be a Golden Fleece type thing where Mario is kind of rejected by his dad and his dad doesn't think he's that great. And so you see Mario throughout the movie, you know, maybe trying to live up to his dad. But what I got a lot of the movie was is Mario kind of hanging out with his friends, trying to figure out, you know, this new world. And they do a lot of throwbacks to like the game and you know various songs and Donkey Kong and there's a scenario where it's like Mario versus Donkey Kong and so it's 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 very uh, it's very much a tribute to to past video games but the story to me is is somewhat lacking and um, once again spoiler alert um, Bowser is trying to marry Peach who I don't know if he's really even met her but yet he's singing songs about her and he wants to marry the princess peach. So to me, the story is just, it, it really falls flat. And so, you know, there's some funny parts. My kids like it, 
but Jess is like, what'd you think? And it's like, well, I mean, it was, I guess it was entertaining, but it's like, I have no desire to watch it again. And it's because they failed to me, in my mind, they don't understand this book, Save the Cat, of you've got to tell a good story and you've got to really tie it into how, how is Mario growing through this? And I think it really kind of falls, falls short. So I'm getting sidetracked here without, without running solo, but so back to, back to, um, telling a good story is, is Spielberg's just tremendous story through, through all this, through a unknown monster just creates this classic of, I don't know what's coming for me. And so, you know, we talk about being able to, to grow and interpret from stories. So to me, it's, it's, you know, we don't always know what's coming for us. Is it a job loss? Is it a divorce? Um, you know, I had that three and 19 soccer season and I, I knew that was coming, but, but when you have, you know, not ideal situations and you can grow from that, or you can, you can take that imperfect season. And I, I've learned so much from that, that I had to be better. I had to do these things differently that, that you grow from that when you can kind of attack your monster. Okay. Um, Jordan Peterson talks a lot about the, the dragon has gold behind him but you've got to tackle the dragon and you've got to kind of go after your monster sometimes. Um, so long story short, you know, um, when, when things aren't ideal, the day's not great. The year hasn't been great. Life's been a struggle. Understand some of your best things can come from that. You can come, you know, the Phoenix from the ashes. Um, you can grow from that. You can build on that. Um, so, Sometimes, I guess, encourage yourself or encourage others when things aren't going your way, like there's ways out of that and there's ways to be creative and it can help you and, and grow from that. So I guess I need to sign out um, running solo here. So uh, this has been Coach Burke and thanks for listening. Hello,